2: Welcome back to EU Confidential, or welcome aboard if this is the first episode you're catching. I'm your host Ryan Heath, author of Politico's Brussels Playbook column that's emailed out each morning at 7am local time. We're here to peek behind the EU curtain with the people who run it, analyse it, and obsess over it. This week we're going to talk about the UK election and Brexit. May the fast be with you, as the Daily Mail put it Monday. We've got an interview with Erna Solberg, the Prime Minister of Norway, and as usual, We're going to ramp up the fun with Alva Finn and Lena Aberoos discussing the idea to demolish the European Parliament's hemicycle chamber and the 28 side gigs. You heard it, 28 side gigs of the Brussels mayor. But first, we just have to talk about this car crash of a British election. Theresa May dreamt of a global Britain, but sitting here, i got to tell you listeners, it feels like she delivered a banana republic. So... Joining me to chew over the many implications for the UK, the rest of the EU and the Brexit process is Andrew Gray. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Ryan. And Harry Cooper. Hi, Harry. Hi, Ryan. These guys come from our expert team of 60 journalists here in Brussels. So, Theresa May, i got to say, if she has done one thing well over the last seven years, it's protect her own job. And we saw with her advisers taking the fall over the weekend that they've become a bit of a scapegoat. Is it okay for those lower-down advisers, those unelected people, to take the hit and for Theresa May to continue on in this situation?
3: I don't know. It reminds me a little bit of a football club that decides it wants to sack its manager but can't afford to. So you end up sacking the assistant <laughs> coach, the goalkeeping coach, the reserve team coach, the chief scout, but not the person in charge. And the strange you don't thing, have a team it, then, do you? No, <laughs> don't have much of a team, but you still have a manager. And I think in, in this particular case, you know, it looks like Conservative MPs have decided they have no alternative. But to stick with her for now, because all the supposed alternatives are worse. So she's still in a job, even though many of them clearly have lost confidence in her, although they're not willing to say that, and apparently she gave a good performance at the 1922 committee, which keeps her alive for now. Maybe they're just organising
2: against her in the background.
3: Well, there's talk of that, but uh, it does look like she's bought time for now. I guess the question is how much. I mean...
4: In my, uh, my previous life, when I was in the European Parliament, I was one of those advisors. So
2: this idea
4: that... Uh, you were a monster that yelled I, at your
2: MEP and all the others around them, is that bad? I pushed
4: back, shall we say. I learned the, the skill of navigating a difficult situation by staying very calm but making the point. Now, I personally think it's slightly bizarre that firing your two assistants would be deemed to be taking responsibility. Ultimately, the buck stops with the elected official. And in this case, Theresa May, she is the Prime Minister. She should have put her foot down.
2: Well, now, if we focus back on Brussels for a second, uh, this doesn't look good for the UK here. So I want to get a read on, does any of that matter? How much of the UK's brand has been damaged? What are you hearing, Harry, when you talk to people about this election?
4: I think everyone's just quite bemused, actually. I mean, Theresa May made this campaign about herself. She made it about her leadership about her getting this stronger mandate to launch these negotiations, and the entire thing's imploded. And I think most people in Brussels are sort of looking, not quite sure what's going on in the UK. And there's a great, I think there's a great irony that it was Eurosceptics who have spent years and years saying the Eurozone was going to collapse political instability across the continent. And then it's the UK that has pressed the red button, not
2: once last year with the referendum, but twice in this ele- the election results. And they went to the election with strong and stable as their slogan. And now look who's strong and stable by comparison.
3: Right. Well, this is we have this great irony, right? It looked like, you know, populism was going to sweep across the continent this year, possibly starting with the Dutch elections, even going back to the Austrian election last year. That was the sense, the narrative, if you like. And now suddenly we have a very pro-European centrist president in France. The Dutch government is going to, I mean, they're taking a very long time to form it, but it looks like it won't be too different from the old one. And so suddenly it's uh, Britain that's uh, struggling and volatile and also struggling more economically than it was last year, Mm. whereas the Eurozone is picking up.
2: Now, to be fair to Theresa May, everyone acts like this is really just the end of the world for her, and maybe it is the end of the line for her. But it's not like Jeremy Corbyn won. It's not like the Scottish National Party is a winner out of this election. They just imploded in Scotland. They lost 20 seats. That's more nearly half of the seats that they had. Andrew, I detect a Scots accent there. Why don't you give us a bit of a read from the homeland?
3: You don't get anything past you, Ryan. Um, I. Uh I mean, I have to think, you know, it's a strange election. Obviously, on a UK level, you can certainly say that nobody won, right? Mm. Uh, Labour put on votes and put on seats, but they did not come close to forming a majority. The Conservatives lost their majority. The Liberal Democrats had a very small gain. You know, smaller parties didn't do particularly well. Perhaps the only big winners are the Democratic Unionist Party, who look like they're now going to have a big say in the government. On the Scottish side, the Scottish National Party also were coming off an incredible high. They lost a lot of seats, so even though they have a number of seats that they would have been delighted to have even a few years ago, you can see that the momentum at the moment is away from them, and that's a big problem for them, obviously, because they need to keep momentum up if they want to get to another independence referendum. So it seems to me,
2: I'm going to go out on a limb and say that second independence referendum is pretty much dead, but a star is born in Ruth Davidson.
3: Well, that's going to be interesting too. Ruth Davidson, the Scottish Conservative leader, now has a lot of sway. She's seen as a star of the Conservative Party. It's going to be interesting whether her group of Scottish MPs. Remember, she's not one of them. She's staying in the Scottish Parliament. But she has, a I feel like, a block of Scottish MPs, Scottish Conservative MPs. Are they going to act independently? Are they going to reflect the views that she seems to have, which are towards a softer Brexit, towards what she calls an open Brexit, Mm -hmm. which is about free trade, uh, trading as closely as possible with the European Union. So it's all up for grabs. But in Scotland, I think, it does look like the independence referendum is off the table for now, but I'm not sure that it's gone for good.
4: I mean, what, what I find quite striking about the situation, you regularly see tweets from Michel Barnier in front of a big room of the Sherpas representing the EU27. Last week he met with the chairs of the committees in, in the European Parliament. The line of, on the day of the result, when the results were announced, we are ready, we are prepared, we are absolutely 100% we are at the table, we want you to come to the table. So this idea that a discussion can begin, a negotiation can begin when it seems that the cards have all been thrown up in the air again, I think it's going to be very challenging for there to be a sensible discussion in Brussels in the
2: next few days. Well that's absolutely right. I think like hearing what you were saying there, it just reminded me that Barnier has really been a little misorganized in this whole process mm, where absolutely. he's been off to see all the kings and queens and prime ministers and presidents of yep. Europe at least twice now. And the UK pretty much hasn't moved forward in the last year. Theresa May is probably going to have to walk back some of the outlines that she made in January or February, and we still don't know really when this is going to kick off. And the really tricky thing, ironically, a hard Brexit would be a lot simpler to
4: negotiate. You leave the customs union, you leave the single market, you say no to free movement, you stop paying into the EU budget. Now... It's not clear what the UK government wants, and so there's going to be nuance, a lot more nuance, in the single market, under the jurisdiction of the
2: ECJ, how much are we going to be paying into the budget? There's a lot more questions now. Now, let's get down to some hard decisions. I'm going to put you on the spot. What will be Theresa May's last day in office? (laughs) (laughs) Andrew. Mm,
3: uh, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult for that one to play out, but I... Okay. Okay. I would say she, by the time of the Conservative Party conference it's going to be very difficult to her for her to survive beyond then. I don't have the date of it in my head. But. Yeah,
2: I give her until October, that's my answer. Sooner, I think sooner. I think wow, so summer, Harry predicts that Theresa May will be gone before Brexit talks I
4: don't. I don't see how she has the standing within the party and broadly in the country. She made the election about herself. She made the election about herself, and she lost that. Well, she didn't lose it, but she she lost the majority, and I think that's a pretty clear signal from the electorate about
2: what they think of her. Well, from one discussion about a strong female leader to another, now we're going to bring in Erna Solberg, the Prime Minister of Norway. I had fun doing this interview. Erna was chilling in the foyer of the Sofitel in Brussels when I arrived, and she brought with her a football signed by the Nordic Prime Ministers in an effort to troll President Donald Trump. The Prime Ministers had signed and photographed themselves holding this football in support of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, and the photo mimicked the one that Gulf state leaders and Trump took with their hands on an orb. In this interview, we cover a lot of long-term issues, but with Brexit talks starting this week, that's the immediate issue on the minds of politicos in Europe. Norway knows a lot about what it's like to have to live with the policies of the EU without having a seat at its decision-making table. So spoiler alert. The Brits might not like the truth serum Solberg serves up here. So, Madam Prime Minister, welcome to Politico's EU Confidential podcast. In the background of a lot of people's political thinking at the moment is Brexit. Now, maybe you're not in the same situation as Ireland. I think the Irish are really freaking out right now about the impact of Brexit. But you're also in the European economic area and a big player there, and I know that the UK has the potential to disrupt that. You've got a lot of Norwegian firms also based in Mm. London for their EU headquarters. How much of a strategic priority is getting Brexit right for you?
0: Well, it's one of our absolutely biggest ones because, well, if you count in oil and gas, Britain is our biggest trading partner, but oil and gas is international pricing and bilateral agreements so it's not affected by brexit then it's, uh, uh, and if you take that away it's uh, the country number 3 mm-hmm. it's sweden and germany who are having more impact and a lot of norwegians are living in britain and a lot of uh, people go to school there and and it's in a way the first step to be more international for a norwegian company is to establish themselves in britain because we are sort of an Anglo American country when it comes to culture and language. Of course, then it's important what will happen with their residencies, what will happen with their businesses, but also what will happen with Norwegian trade. On the other hand, we are interlinked in the single market and one of my main messages to EU has been there are not twenty-seven members of the single market after a Brexit. There are thirty. And since this is our we are uh, fully in accordance with the four freedoms, they have to take into account that we also have to be thought of and we have to be in good contact. And I feel that they are, in fact, reaching out to us. Michel Barnier has been to Norway to check out you know, on our priorities. So we feel that we are in good contact. But we are using, of course, quite a lot of resources of making sure that when the heat gets up, when the negotiation really starts... They also will remember this. Mm-hmm. And of course we are countries that might have on some terms the same challenges as the rest of the EU, but on some areas different. Of course we have both Norway and Iceland has fishery policies as a part important part, landing of fish into Britain. Britain is going to take their fish resources out of EU. How will we do this dealing afterwards? There's a lot of these issues that we have to sort out. And as it now seems that they will not be able to agree on the term time limit on on all of the aspects it's important for us to be part of this temporary measures that they are doing.
2: Mm-hmm. And that you're almost the prime living case study in a sense of the difficulties of Brexit because as you say you need to be consulted but you're not at the table mm-hmm. formally. How does that feel on a day-to-day basis. I was hearing your Europe minister in 2016 describing how there is something like five new or amended EU laws for each sitting day in the Norwegian parliament that need to be processed. So obviously it's an arrangement that works for Norway, but is there any insider view or tip for the UK about how they're going to have to handle their adjustment to not being at the table anymore?
0: Well, I think the most important part is that since we are fully in accordance with the four freedoms, we also have a system of external surveillance that we are following them, the ESA system that we have, which is a parallel to the court and the, yes, all of these institutions we have made. And we do this in a way more, if not automatic, more or less automatic. But if it's EAA relevant, we will put it into Norwegian law. It's not that big a discussion. We have discussions. We try to be a lobby organisation. We try to be in front of, of decision to make sure that they are seeing our aspects, that... And I think that you have to work more like that because you're not on the table. But I think the challenge for Britain is, of course, will they have the same type of automatic uh, agreement on what, it, what rules and regulations are relevant or not? Mm. They if seem to be
2: going further away, yeah. don't they? Like putting more yes. distance between yeah. them and the EU.
0: And then I think you will get out of the rhythm in a different way. And I think that will be more challenging to be partners totally in a single market and not following the same rules and regulations. And and I think that will make, make the decision process also in Britain more difficult, but they have to find their own path. They might find that freedom of movement is a, a small price to pay for having a smoother functioning system for all of your businesses.
2: So tell us a bit more about why you're in Brussels. What's the message you're bringing to everyone who's gathered here this week?
0: Well, I'm here in the capacity of being co-chair of the uh, Sustainable Development Goals Advocacy Group, And we are all becoming developing countries because none of us are meeting the 17 goals and the 169 targets. Uh, We all have something to work on. And uh, if we are going to make sure that we, in the future, can cope better with migration, can cope better with inclusive governments can make more trust between politicians and the people and that we can make sure that we can get that economic development that is needed both in Africa but also in Europe because too many people are outside the labour market. Mm -hmm.
2: And is it fair to call the SDGs, as they're known in the the UN world, is it almost preventative foreign policy in a sense where it's investing Mm -hmm. now to prevent future strategic problems or conflicts?
0: Absolutely. It's a roadmap for the future we want. It's about understanding that you can't solve one problem without trying to take care of the other ones. If you want to do something on environment, if you really want to be successful on the Paris agenda, the climate challenges, you also have to create growth. You have to create economic jobs. You have to make sure that they are not deteriorating the environment. But I don't believe it's possible to reach the Paris Agreement without also having more job creation, make more hope for people.
2: Now we're talking about the elephant in the room in a sense because Mr Trump has just withdrawn from the Paris Mm -hmm. Agreement or announced his intention to do that and you've made the link with the SDGs you've got a good insurance policy by reaching out to all of these regional and local politicians to make sure that it's deeply embedded across the political landscape. But how much damage could someone like President Trump do if he wants to not just be difficult on NATO or Paris, but really dive into something like the Sustainable Development Goals?
0: Well, I think it's much more limited than people think. Uh, I think if it had happened 15 years ago, it would have created more damage. There is a Movement also in the U.S. from uh, states, businesses, and others to see that you need a greener path, that you need to do something about emissions, and the American emissions are going down, basically based on not so much on policies as based on technology, mm-hmm. and I think that will continue. I think there are some parts of the S.D.S. that we see are loosening. Uh, I think the American administrations. Withdrawal from support for family planning mm-hmm. and all organizations that work on that. For me, as an advocate for both gender equality and for girls' education, family planning is extremely important. Maternal health is extremely important. And we know that one of the big achievements that we have had on the Millennium Development Goals from 2000 to 2015 is on lowering child deaths. And one of the reasons why we are one of the countries that have increased our support for the same type of organization that the Americans have opted out of.
2: Now, Norway's got a quite sophisticated view on this sort of civil society support. And I was in town in Oslo for the Freedom Forum about this time last year. And it really struck me the number of NGOs that had major offices or headquarters in Norway. And I was wondering if you could reflect on that a little. I can't, I'm not sure is that just a function of Norway's wealth or is it, is it driven by something else that you're trying to do at the policy level?
0: There are different reasons for this. One is the fact that Norway did a lot of this work early on. I think it was part of also the Protestant missionary movement. In the, if you go a hundred years back, there was a lot of Norwegians who were trying to save the world at that time too, uh, based on a Protestant Christian tradition, and that have been strong. It's been strong in the church, it's been strong as a basis for the civil society, also, but it's also been strong in the labor movement, mm-hmm. and also in civil society movements. And The other part is that After the last 30 years, the understanding that you also have to make sure that this civil society organization functions, they have gotten a spot on our state budgets, our national budgets. And through that, we got a very early professional civil society, which means that, for example, an organization like our Refugee Council, who, if you go 30 years back, was mainly paid by the Norwegian government to do its emergency work. Today now is an operator that is getting money from a lot of other countries' uh, governments, from EU and from the UN, because they are so good at their work.
2: I guess one final question. You've got an election coming up in a few months. Are you got any summer holiday plans or is it all work, work, work through to the election? Uh,
0: no, Norway is a country where people take summer holidays. So I'll, I'll have, a, I have some 10 days or something and then I'm going to the EU, to France, but then I'll have some days back home in Norway as a holiday. But it's always a bit of work at the same time. But I think Norwegian people will get tired of its politicians if we continue with full-force election campaigning in July. People like their holidays.
2: It's a very healthy attitude. Thank you so much, (laughs) Prime Minister. (laughs) Now it's time for my favourite part of the podcast. I wonder if that should be a plural, actually. Uh, I think we've got a few too many WTF moments this week. Welcome back, Alva Finn.
5: Hi.
2: Welcome back, Lena Avaroos.
5: Hello, Ryan and Alva.
2: Now, I've got to say, we're trying out a new format with this podcast and we're all around a circular table. And it's been a while since I've been this close to a lady. But (laughs) we'll see how this works. Not me, though. (laughs) Now... Case study number one. Let's start with the big one. A plan from the European Parliament's top civil servant, Klaus Vella to cream off 430 million euros from the EU budget to demolish one of the Parliament's buildings in Brussels. He's effectively saying to Antonio Tajani, Mr President, tear down this building. And I think that we're going to have a bit of fun with this one. The official reason he gives, that the current building could collapse or suffer severe damage because it's built on unstable sand. The unofficial reason, because the Parliament knows that it's housed in what was originally meant to be a conference centre, and they think they deserve something more prestigious. So let's turn to our Uber citizens, Alva and Lena. Alva, what do you reckon?
6: Where is the self-awareness here, Ryan? It's just, I mean, it's beguiling. It's very confusing. You present one option as being, we can tear down the whole thing, I don't know where all the meetings that would take place in that building will now take place when it's been torn down and they're building a whole new one.
2: Probably in a tent on Plus Luxembourg. Let's get real.
6: It's literally 15 times more expensive than renovating. And at this time, is that really what we need to be playing into Eurosceptic hands by doing that? And also the the reports that were written, surely people are going to say, oh yeah, you should rebuild and we'll help you when you rebuild it.
2: Now, Lena, Marine Le Pen... (laughs) She's probably sitting here laughing her head off. What what do you think about all this?
5: She's going to have some fun time and a lot of time to be shouting. First of all, it's one of the many buildings of the parliament. And second, is it possible to finish on time and with this budget? We all know that construction, they start and architects and uh, these construction companies. No, are you saying that construction work doesn't
2: end on time uh, or on budget?
5: And especially here, you know, where we are in Brussels. And it's just, like, funny. We have a house. You want to... Somebody tells you, no, go buy a new house or, like, demolish your own house or you renovate. So it's just, like, more confusing as the building itself is very confusing.
2: Now, you've got a point here because I've got to say there are probably few times where I have cried as a grown adult outside of a movie theater or some kind of physical injury. I've pretty much almost broken down crying in that parliament building, and I have to give extra time every single time I go there just to make sure I don't get lost. What yeah. is it about that building that's so terrible?
5: You know, Ryan, we have a rule in, in my office. Never set Lena alone in the parliament because I may <laughs> <laughs> never come back.
2: Is there an app for that? Is there like a tracking device for Lena like and other and lost yeah. people? It's in there.
5: And if it ever happen to you that you are waiting outside to be escorted, it just watch the visitors' faces. Looking how they are going to get in, and the they i have never heard of color coding or anything, have they? They look frightened. I myself, <laughs> I, I myself, when I go there, and I'm waiting to be for one of the assistants to to escort me, and of course I have somebody always from my colleagues with me, but I'm like, oh my god, how long is it gonna take me? And always you can't go with with heels. Of course, I'm talking as a woman. It will take you forever to to get somewhere. So it's just adding more confusion to the confusion, unnecessary.
6: It is really like Narnia in there but they just don't have good signage that's sometimes I, I kind of think I go and I I'm looking for a sign to where we should be exactly. going. Or why and is it called
2: 3G7H425? Like, what, how is that going to help you?
6: Maybe if they got some, I don't know, expert on the organisation, numerical, I don't know, uh, they could put everything in order properly. The Everybody London Underground. Well, here's a to... reason
2: the Brits can be welcome in Brussels. You need to <laughs> import the guy who does, or the woman who does the map for the London Underground and just get them to sort out the parliament. And there you go, 430 million saved.
6: Exactly. Yeah, that's a good idea. And yeah, I, I just, I don't think it should be rebuilt just to satiate the egos of all the MEPs in there, just because they feel that they should be in something that represents what they're there to do.
5: But I was sure of the, the, the official reason.
2: Oh, we saw in the linked memo. <laughs> is,
5: is, is there like uh, an independent committee of experts and architects and construction uh-huh. and all these experts to assess really, is this building going to collapse? I mean... We just read a leaked memo. hour. I mean, everybody's. Talking well, part about of the
2: roof did collapse in 2013. But it was repaired over the actual hemicycle.
5: <laughs> but it was repaired. So, I, I, I would encourage an independent committee to to verify this information before we really renovate. It's just still 30 million. It's not an, a little amount of money.
2: And they could always chip in from their allowances, couldn't they? Mm.
5: Well, and then the other thing is about the second
6: seat. We're going to rebuild something that's going to cost half a oh, billion euro. Got when it. Strasbourg
2: all- is going to begin a campaign, get rid of the second seat, but they'll say just get rid of Brussels yeah. and move it all to Strasbourg permanently. Oh,
6: yeah, yeah Strasbourg at least we're, I don't know, well, are, is, is the building in Strasbourg up to the euro code? Who knows?
2: Well, I'm, I've got to tell you, the Churchill building, listeners, there's one quite nice building in Strasbourg, but its architectural conceit is that it is unfinished because democracy is unfinished. So it is as confusing almost as the Brussels building, but at least it's a nice building. And there's this god-awful brown-coloured building called the Winston Churchill Building, and that is, I mean, that's just a disaster. I would blow that up myself (laughs) given the opportunity. But I think maybe time is getting the better of us, and we should move on to case study number two in EUWTF, and that is about the mayor of Brussels. So, a man called Ivan Mayer is resigning because he took undeclared cash payments to attend the board meetings of a homelessness support service. I honestly have no words for that. But that news is several weeks old. That's not even what we're going to talk about today. What we're going to talk about is the new mayor, Philippe Close, who has 28 side jobs. Yes, 28. That's four per day, even if he was working on weekends. And he still managed to declare, failed to declare, seven of those 28 side jobs. So just to be 100% clear, he got an amazing new gig because of a scandal where someone else had to resign for doing the wrong thing and he still failed to declare these seven new gigs. And they're not gigs where you are kind of out there on the local parish church committee or you're helping run your own building or anything like that. This guy, amongst his 28 jobs, he's on the board of the Atomium, a major tourist attraction, of the insurance company Etias and a big... Brussels urban development project called NEO. Now, far be it from me to speculate, but construction projects, you know, they're not known for always being above board. So I'm seeing a lot of red flags when I hear these names. So the big question, is it ever okay for a mayor or another politician to hold 28 side gigs? Lena?
5: It's never normal and it's never good or um, possible. Uh, It shouldn't be legal. This gentleman must be a genius to be able to handle 28 uh, position. He must have like an army of personal representatives and people taking notes and minutes to keep him up to date. And on top of that, we are in the capital of transparency and regulations. This is where everything is being formulated to govern and regulate Europe. How come the mayor of Brussels is somebody is unable to be uh, abided by these rules of transparency? And to remember, oh, I'm sorry, uh, I'm on 28. Oh, there are another missing uh, seven uh, boards. or It is definitely unacceptable. And the citizens of Brussels should do something about it, whether on social media, whether to protest. If we agree on, on this one, if we say yes, it's fine, we will have many of this type of mayors, not only in Brussels.
2: Alva, how many jobs have you got?
5: Uh, I have one.
6: Uh, one? Yeah. God, just, what a lazy just, little worker you are. But just one, but also sometimes we are offered at my organization, you know, kind of like seats on, on board. So I'm going to just play devil's advocate here because I'm looking at a few of the things that he is on Well, there were things that you mentioned, like he's on the board of the Atomium and there's a Brussels urban development project. Uh, Perhaps he's just requested to be on them, but sometimes they really just don't take that much time. I mean, everybody has, has had experience with boards. Sometimes board members are not so active.
2: So he's a bit of a resume fluffer.
6: Yeah, but also you're you're requested to do them for for some of these things I do think like, you know, you would probably want the the mayor of Brussels on the the board of the the Atomium, right? Just just so he knows what's going on and it's a kind of
2: He doesn't get in the way with any annoying regulations or anything like yeah, that. Yeah,
6: and he knows what's going on and yeah, it's probably a little bit like reputational and, but without any
5: conflict of interest. Yeah, no, that's true. You know, but it, it's impossible for 28 well, you
2: also can't I mean, even know unless I mean, you declare, declare them. them.
5: Exactly, mm-hmm. and then let the citizens be able to judge. And the city council members, I think, it's it's not normal. Like, they're all of them, like, all in harmony and there's no problem. Well, if it's hospitals and museums, uh, touristic attraction, fine. But 28, mm-hmm. there must be something uh, to be here, chain. chain. I
2: think we got a clear verdict from the panel that... Uh, 28 jobs is too many jobs, especially in a continent when there are so many unemployed people. I think it's time to share the love, Philippe Close. Okay, let's keep the ball rolling and let's move on to Dear Politico, the advice column of EU Confidential. So we're going to turn to the problems of our listeners and see if we can solve them. Remember, if you've got a problem and you want it addressed by us, send a note to playbook at politico.eu with Dear Politico in the subject line. This week, we're going to turn to the plight of the unpaid intern. Gaspar has written to us to say that he turned up in Brussels in early 2016. Well done, Gaspar. He came armed with a master's degree in political science and EU studies. He's since completed two internships. One paid, one unpaid, and he's running out of cash. Or, to be more precise, he ran out of cash and he's living off a credit card. The company he's currently interning with has offered to extend the internship, but they're only going to give him meal vouchers. So for people who aren't in Belgium, that is like a system of checks that allow you to exchange them, a bit like food stamps in the United States for food and drink. You can't go off and buy a car, you can't go and spend it at a gambling shop, but you can live. certainly doesn't pay the rent. Let's put it that way. Now, Gasper is part of an interim protest movement in Brussels, and they've filed a lawsuit against the Belgian government for the restrictive and what they say is exploitative nature of the internship laws here. But, of course, that's not going to help Gasper in the short term. So, the big question. Should Gasper stay or should he go home? And what could he do to pressure his company to pay him a living wage? Alva.
6: Well... Jasper, I really empathise with you. I went through this cycle myself. I left college in the middle of the financial crisis and tried to start a career in human rights, which did bring me to Brussels, also through an internship uh, with one of the EU institutions. So my first advice to you would be maybe try with the EU institutions because they actually do pay. It's something around €1,000, a little bit above that, maybe 1100 or something like that. But it is enough to kind of get you by i had a great time when i did mine all those years ago so look into that number one if you really want to try and get the internship now that you're with to pay you first of all i think they're they're breaking belgian labor law so there is an initiative i think it's called the intern blacklist or something like that you could possibly report this to them and try and shame them into it or maybe threaten to but probably what I would do is look for an internship that is paid uh, because there are Belgian laws uh, it's something like 750 euro a month but at least that'll get you by and apply for the blue block. maybe look on the commission
2: website. So that's the official EU internships. Mm. Lena.
5: But you know Alva not all the EU institutions pay for instance in the European Parliament it depends on the individual MEP to pay their interns are not and how much. And I've been interned so many times in my life and uh, luckily haven't been paid ever, but I gained a very good experience. Maybe with, with all the social media now, you leave this company, write down your resume, contact people, look for something so where you can get a job, but make as well a point that you change this for the others. Campaign, write on the social media, don't let go building a good company and a brand of a company, it's about reputation management. And the company you're working with now, and they are paying you in food vouchers, I think they are really damaging their own reputation. It's not something simple just to treat your own people and mm-hmm. our staff Maybe like he that. could have
2: an anonymous social media account, exactly. for example, that highlights who oh. is paying their wage in the form of meal vouchers. That could yeah. Uh, yeah. shake things up a little bit. Yeah,
5: You shouldn't be silent. And you shouldn't leave Brussels if it's a good place for you to gain experience and start your, especially if you are in EU affairs.
2: Excellent. Well, I think we've got a wrap now on that session of Dear Politico. Remember to send us your problems and questions to playbook at politico.eu. That's playbook at politico.eu. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. We're really excited that you took the time to listen to this podcast and we're keen to get the word out about it. So if you enjoyed it, please share it with your colleagues and your friends. You can subscribe on iTunes or on SoundCloud by searching for EU Confidential. And we'll be joining you the same time next week with another exciting lineup and these two fabulous women to talk us through all of the problems and issues that are facing Europe's politicians.